everybody, coming up, they say it's good to spend time with your kids out in nature. Now, we want to, obviously, but but come on, do we really do that? Here's a few how-tos coming up on the show, right next on the Matt Townsend Show. For BYU Radio News, I'm Ian Jones. Here are a few of the stories we're following today. The conference board reports that consumer confidence has risen this month, but the AP's Mark Hamrick reports celebration is muted. The rebound comes after four straight monthly declines. The business group's index was stronger than expected, but still considered depressed. Economist Chris Christopher says the outlook remains mixed at best. Now there's a little bounce back. They said, you know, they basically um, feel a little more confident about the future, but they still are quite pessimistic on their current circumstances. In a separate report, the Commerce Department says spending was flat in June, with an improvement in incomes all going straight into savings. Mark Hamrick, Washington. South African double amputee Oscar Pistorius says his prosthetic limbs do not give him an advantage over able-bodied runners. AP correspondent John Klobuchar reports. Pistorius runs on a pair of carbon fiber blades. Saturday, he'll become the first amputee runner to compete in the Olympics. Critics have said his blades give him an unfair advantage over able-bodied athletes. Wednesday in London, Pistorius countered. They've tested me, they've tested the prosthetic in isolation, they've tested acceleration, deceleration, steady-state running speed. I mean, we can get so technical about how much stuff they've tested, and there isn't an advantage. Known as the Blade Runner, Pistorius has grown a bit tired of the controversy surrounding his prosthetic limbs. At a point, I just need to move on, and, and in my heart, I know what's right, and I wouldn't be running here if I had any doubts. He'll also be allowed to run in any leg of next week's 400 relay. John Colbicart, London. Small fruit and vegetable farmers throughout the Midwest are struggling with a once-in-decades drought. Some have lost crops, while others are paying a lot more to irrigate. AP correspondent Robert Ray reports. The plants just dried up and died. Joel and Jay Kellum have been at this for 15 years. Without rain in June and July and above average temperatures, this normally thriving vegetable crop that supplies farmers markets in Chicago and private clients is dried up. Kings Hill Farm sent out a letter to their client base telling them that the drought that now covers two-thirds of the U.S. had destroyed their crops. Same thing's happening with every corn and hay farmer around here and their cultural techniques are tried and true for, for generations. Robert Ray, Mineral Point, Wisconsin. As President Obama travels to the key battleground state of Ohio, Mitt Romney is airing an attack ad on President Obama and the impact the auto industry bailout had on that state. The AP's Ed Donahue reports. The Republican presidential candidate focuses one ad on a GM dealer in Lynnhurst, Ohio. You know, it was like the dream that we worked for and that we worked so hard for was gone. Under terms of the bailout, some General Motors dealerships were forced to close. We had 30-some employees that were out of work. The ad blames the Obama administration for dealership closures across Ohio. The auto bailout was started in 2008 during the Bush administration and continued under the Obama administration. Mitt Romney has said Detroit's auto companies should be left to go through bankruptcy without government assistance. Ed Donahue, Washington. If you've got $100 million lying around, you could snap up what's thought to be the most expensive apartment in New York for now. AP correspondent Julie Walker reports. The $100 million penthouse sits atop the city spire building on West 56th Street overlooking Central Park. The 8,000-square-foot apartment occupies three floors, has an elevator, and includes six bedrooms, nine bathrooms, a wraparound terrace, 
and 135 windows. It's being sold by Long Island real estate developer Stephen Clark. He bought the property for $4.5 million in 1993 and spent at least as much renovating it. Julie Walker, New York. And that's all for now from the BYU Radio Newsroom. Thanks for tuning in to Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. I'm Ian Jones. Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. I am your host, Matt Townsend, your relationship guide. Your guide on the side? I don't know what I am anymore. Uh, Today we're talking nature. Maybe I'm going to be your nature guide. This is the program where every day we try to help you and your loved ones grow healthier, happier lives, better relationships, and just try to give you a little uh, hand up on this thing we call life. See if we can't um, make your life a little easier, give you some tools to to really take advantage of uh, the great opportunities you have in this world with your family, with your friends. And overall, I guess, with your health, we've been talking about health a lot lately. We've been uh, mentioning a little bit about the Olympics. And today we're going to bring you back to nature. It's a really interesting thing. I am about to leave town to go. Now, I live in um, Utah, Salt Lake City, Utah, just right there by the big, beautiful Rocky Mountains, I guess, Wasatch Front. And... um interesting thing. I'm I'm about to go to Idaho, to Sun Valley, Idaho, which is, you know, back to nature, ski resort. And uh, I had the trip planned forever. I'm going to do a speech up in Idaho and um, supposed to bring my whole family. I was so excited. I've been thinking about this. We'll get up there. I don't know what we would do. We'd probably mountain bike, but all my kids don't have bikes. That's how bad of a father I am. And we were just going to get back to nature. Well, I got an email from my wife. She thinks that's the best way to get hold of me sometimes. And she informs me that two of my boys have football and are apparently not going to be able to go to Sun Valley. So she probably ought to stay then. And then we have to some workers coming to work on our house. So she'll just stay and I'm starting to think, hey, it's almost like she doesn't want to go to Sun Valley to hang out in a nice hotel, but then to like get back up on the mountain maybe. Or – and then I'm like, well, that's OK. I'll take some of my boys. And then I'm finding out one by one a lot of the boys have got other things. So I'm thinking, you know what? What is the deal? We have a paid vacation to get back to nature, and I can't get enough of us even to go. Is there something wrong with us? Now, here's the deal I'm pretty convinced of. I have raised a family that is anti-nature. <sighs> so bad. I, I don't know that I intentionally raised them to be anti-nature, but I don't like camping. You get dirty. You don't sleep. Half of our gear doesn't work. The tents leak. There's bugs, and there's dirt everywhere. So I kind of, and I, by the way, never raised, you know, getting back to nature, getting in a tent, never got into that, except the irony is when we get there, love it. Like it, beautiful, feel relaxed, feel calm. I even like putting up a tent, going to sleep under the stars, love it all. It's just getting there seems to overwhelm us as a family. And so on today's show, we've decided to figure out how do you get back to nature for real? How do you gain an appreciation of nature? And I think we all like nature. You know, it's, we have to kind of respect it. 
There's tsunamis, there's hurricanes, there's all these things about nature we have to respect. But think of it yourself. Do you love nature? And do you love it for more than just going out on the hunt, which is, I think, part of being, uh, you know, part of nature? But do you also like to just get there and climb a mountain? My father-in-law took my sons out on a hike, uh, and we went to dinner the other night, and he, one of his first pieces of advice to me was simply, um, you need to get your kids out in nature more often. (laughs) And I'm like, why? And he goes, well, I tried to get them to climb up this mountain, and it just they just didn't like it. They just didn't like the climb. They didn't like they didn't like it. They kept basically wanting to get back as fast as they can. So we're going to be talking about getting back to nature. We're going to be bringing on an expert, uh, one of the professors here at Brigham Young University, who's going to talk to us about the power of nature, the power of nature in your family, and how you can use it to connect to what matters most, to the people that matter most in your life, even to the people that have gone on in life, who have passed away, how to use nature to connect to these people. Wonderful professor coming up, uh, Dr. George B. Handley will be talking with us as well. But before we go there, even those uh, of us who aren't outdoorsy types can find ways to commune with nature, right? Ben Wagner reflects on his own experiences with the outdoors, even though he's not a nature type. I grew up in the country a house in the middle of rural South Carolina, a legal pad yellow two-story affair at the bottom of a hill, completely surrounded by trees, fields, and a swamp at the center of which lay a small creek, one that was really too small to swim in. At its deepest point, it was barely waist-deep, but was just large enough to serve as a home to a variety of deadly creatures. Water moccasins, the southern colloquialism for a breed of venomous aquatic pit vipers, were a common danger. I assume there were probably vampiric leeches as well, although I never saw one. Standing on the bridge overlooking the creek, we could always see the snapping turtles lounging in the muggy sun. And of course, every once in a while, someone would spot a gator from the bridge, several feet of monstrosity designed for one purpose only, to eat me. The creek was removed from our house by about 200 yards, a space which was covered by a dense forest which got progressively swampier the closer you were to that creek. When I was a small child, this forest seemed like a wondrous place, which I routinely explored in camouflage or Jedi robes. I climbed its trees, fought imaginary stormtroopers, even swam a few times in the creek. We lost several pets to the forest's menagerie of deadly creatures, a dog that ran off into the woods and never came back, and one that did, only with a deadly snake bite. I'm not sure if it was these incidents or just an overall awareness of the dangers that the woods held, or maybe my discovery of books, movies, and video games, but at some point in my childhood, I stopped caring about that forest, ceased my adventures. In fact, I stopped enjoying nature at all. It was too hot, too deadly, too exhausting. My goal became to spend as little time outside as possible. Thus, for most of my life, I found the outdoors to be something to be tolerated, not enjoyed. I wasn't much for communing with nature, which was unusual for the area I grew up in. Most of my friends were avid outdoorsmen, frequently hunting and fishing. As I grew up, I became more interested in what was going on outside of my small, rural slice of the world. I wanted to know what was happening in Paris, New York, and London. Why go outside when there's a book to be read? Why commune with nature when Thoreau already did and wrote so beautifully about it? This attitude about nature became a permanent character flaw. A few years ago, I was in England and took a trip to the Lake District. My purpose was literary, not recreational. This was the land of Wordsworth and Coleridge, 
and I couldn't pass up an opportunity to see the land that had so inspired them. I arrived on a moonless night and quickly went to sleep. When I arose the next morning, there was a light fog hovering above the water of the ponderous lake. That morning, I hiked a few miles up to the home Wordsworth had lived in, a small wooden house in a sleepy English village just on the edge of the lake, the kind of place you imagine only exists in paintings. The surrounding hills were that deep auburn, a shade that only exists in those few weeks of October before winter suffocates the fall. Having spent the morning hiking, I was presented the option of taking a bus back. Instead, to my surprise, I chose to walk back. Like that five-year-old camouflaged boy, I spent the rest of the afternoon sitting on the edge of the lake, exploring the wooded hills, and hiking to the top of a small cave I stumbled upon. I had planned to spend the day reading, stopping along the paths to lose myself in Tintern Abbey. I wandered lonely as a cloud, and my heart leaped up. But as I wound my way around the lakes, I found words lacking, insufficient, and the book of poetry stayed safely stowed in my bag. Excellent job by Ben Wagner there. Appreciate that insight. It's just interesting. We all have this history. Everyone has their own history with nature. Some have lost their dogs and some have lost their themselves. Some have found themselves on these uh, trips back to nature. So we're going to be bringing in expert George B. Hanley, a professor from Brigham Young University, who we're going to see if he can't help us reinvigorate our appreciation of nature, give us some ideas for what we're really missing and uh, hopefully ignite a spark inside of all of us to appreciate those things that matter most to us. We will be back after this break, folks. You're listening to The Matt Townsend Show on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. Having a bad hair day? Some math and science may be as useful to you as trying a new brush or styling gel. This is Innovation Now. Bringing you stories of revolutionary ideas, emerging technologies, and the people behind the concepts that shape the future. How does human hair maintain volume and structure when tied into various forms? Scientists working at the University of Cambridge and University of Warwick believe they have, if you will, untied the factors that determine the shape of the human ponytail. First, they came up with the formula based on the stiffness of individual hair follicles, the average waviness of human hair, gravity, and some other complex physics. Then they calculated the Rapunzel number, a key ratio needed to calculate the effects of gravity on hair relative to its length. Using the ratio, they can predict whether hair in a ponytail will appear fanned out or dive down in a straight vertical drop. Why are scientists interested in studying ponytails? The work may lead companies to create better hair products. The findings could also be applied to bundles of other long filaments, including fiberglass and wool. Computer animation specialists could also tap into the research to make the next generation of animated Hollywood movies appear more realistic than ever before. For Innovation Now, this is Buddy Rubino. Innovation Now is produced by the National Institute of Aerospace through collaboration with NASA and is distributed by WHRV. Visit us online at innovationnow.us. Rise up and become a corporate sponsor of Cougar Sports on BYU Radio and BYU-TV. For information, call 801-422-1448 or email support at byu.edu. Go Cougars! Travel the musical road of American history on Highway 89 Scenic Byway. 
with music from talented musicians from BYU campus and across the globe. Highway 89 brings you the best performances from classical to jazz and folk to rock. Tune in for a musical journey with Highway 89 at 10 p.m. Eastern on Sirius XM 143, BYU Radio. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. We've been talking about getting back to nature. How do you uh, reinvigorate your love of nature? How do you reconnect to that calm, peaceful source? Now, as a guy that lives in a state with I don't even know how many national parks, state parks, I got it all in town here, or at least within you know three, four hours from my home, and it's just I don't know. It doesn't seem to call you until you get there and shut down the world and find some peace and find some calm. So today we're going to be bringing in um, Dr. George B. Handley, a professor of humanities at Brigham Young University, who has um, often written on issues related to environmentalism. And we're going to pick his brain and see if he can't get us to reconnect, to find the love. But before we do that, maybe one of the easiest ways to reconnect with nature is to simply kick off your shoes. I almost never go to the state fair because I'm just really not that interested in agriculture and I don't trust any ride that workers regularly collapse and load on the back of a flatbed semi. Have you seen those vendors? I'm not just talking the food guys. I'm talking about the guy who tried to sell me this device that, well, he said for millennia, mankind walked around barefoot on the ground. And as we get all staticky and chargy from... I don't know where he really didn't say. But we build up supposedly all this bad electricity through the day, which would go through our feet into the ground. But because we wear rubber shoes now, that electricity just builds up and makes us sick and yada, yada, yada. Anyway, his solution was to sell me a $1,000 device that would allow me to connect my feet to the wall socket while I slept. Joke's on him. I just went home and took my shoes off and walked around to the grass. I don't know if I trust this guy's science, but I do have to admit, walking around in the grass feels fantastic. In fact, walking around barefoot nearly anywhere feels pretty nice. You ever tried driving barefoot? I'm not sure if that's legal or not. The Society for Barefoot Living claims it is legal, except in Ohio, where the law says it's not recommended. Or in Alabama, where they say it's legal to drive a car barefoot, but not ride a motorcycle barefoot. Why would you do that? <laughs> or in a handful of other states where it can get you a ticket if your bare feet cause an accident. But if it is safe and legal to do so, try switching the air conditioner from blowing out the top vents towards your face. Make the cool air come out near your feet. It feels fantastic during a long trip. But I do suppose air conditioning really isn't helping us reconnect with nature. So if we go back to that topic, I do have to admit walking around barefoot also has its trade-offs when I've tried doing it. Because you're more likely to step on something sharp, Ouch. step on something gross, oh, gross, or expose my foot to some kind of a parasite. Oh, gross. And bare feet do not like walking across hot blacktop in July or tiptoeing outside to grab the mail on January 2nd. But despite all that, I really don't think it's substantially worse than the other efforts we make to reconnect with nature. Adventure hiking? <laughs> do that wrong and you could wind up reconnecting with nature six feet under a rock with your name on it. Now, that's not a very good sales pitch, but after work, try kicking your shoes off and go walk around in the lawn for just a bit. It will feel great. 
Good job, Rob Sanders. There, appreciate that. He, um, all those uh, people screaming, "Ouch, gross!" Those were all of our producers around the office as Rob's walking around without his shoes on. Um, he needs some shoes. Appreciate that. Now, what we want to do, we're bringing on Dr. George B. Handley from Brigham Young University. He's a professor of humanities and um, has often written on issues related to environmentalism. Dr. Handley was raised in Connecticut, has a bachelor's degree from Stanford University and a master's and Ph.D. from the University of California, Berkeley. He's taught at a variety of universities around the country, and he's the author of a book, Home Waters, A Year of Recompenses on the Provo River. Um, which was uh, uh, published in 2010. And another one was New World Poetics, Nature and the Academic Imagination of Whitman. So, Dr. Hanley, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. It really is an interesting topic for me because we sit in the Rocky Mountains, beautiful, everything, and yet we don't always connect to nature. What Do you sense, are we just sliding away from it as people as we get more technologically driven? Or what's happening to us? Or is it just me? <laughs> no, I don't think you're alone. Um, you know, I, uh, I often take a poll informally of my classes uh, to see how many of them were raised on farms. And then I'll ask how many of them uh, had parents who were raised on farms. And then, okay, how many of you have to go back to your grandparents or before? before yeah. And uh, it's you know you see it right there that we've uh, undergone as as a culture a pretty significant shift in in our economy and in our way of life and we're no longer connected to to the natural world in a in a vital way. I mm-hmm. mean we are yeah uh, we in we're essence dependent. but we yeah. don't uh, we don't recognize it as much. We don't work as hard uh, for that relationship that we used to have. So I think we. We tend to compartmentalize nature. We think of it as a, you know, maybe another channel on the television that we yeah. can flip to, but it's not. It's not integrated into the into our identities, into the way we understand ourselves. Yeah. So we're not very aware of weather. We're not very aware of, uh, you know, uh, trends in precipitation and things like right. that. We're just not thinking. It's interesting. You might, you must if you, if you think back to like a farmer that could just go out and just fill the dirt. And was just he didn't just see it as the means. Nature was not just the means to his end. He was kind of one with it. He was he got it. He read the weather. He read he read everything. Um, we're getting away from that, and it, part of it is we may not even know what we're missing, right? What so what are we missing? As somebody that studied this more, what are we missing by not being connected to it? Well, uh, boy, you could. I could go on and on, but certainly uh, an awareness that we are um, living among other living things. Yeah. Uh, we're not the only species on the planet. We are dependent on uh, the physical environment around us in ways that we don't always recognize. And there certainly are um, ample opportunities for perceiving and experiencing beauty Mm -hmm. uh, in the natural world. There's also opportunities in nature to experience ugliness and fear and terror even. Uh Uh, And and that too teaches us something vital, I think. Um, So I think we we become, potentially anyway, I mean, there's no guarantee that just being out in nature solves the problem. But I think we are very narcissistic yeah. In our tendencies to see things only in our own personal terms or in our own human terms and not in the broader context of uh, the ecosystems upon which we depend and the different life forms that are surrounding yeah. us. 
That's fascinating. And you said that we're kind of um, we compartmentalize nature. It's like I, I my friends we kind of just see it as something you. It's like a sport. It's it's the it's the location where sports take place. Yeah. It's the it's where you put your boat. And they, but sometimes you're so caught up in putting the boat in the water that you're not noticing the water. Or, yeah, you know. Yeah, I'm I'm a I'm a bit of a fan of uh, non mechanized recreation for that I reason. That. I think uh, rowing on water or walking and and biking on a mountain or uh, uh, standing in a river. Uh, those kinds of recreational opportunities where we actually have to do a little yeah. bit of physical uh-huh. uh, labor to enjoy, I think, enhance the the experience yeah. immensely because it, you're you're we are not just um, individuals who exist in the mind or exist in the spirit, but we're embodied beings, totally. and we need to experience the senses fully. And I think any any recreational opportunity that does that is good for us. It seems like too. It's it, that's kind of what nature demands of you. Like if you've ever been caught in the ri- a riptide, you automatically have this inherent respect for nature that it just operates with or without you. Yeah, it's going to happen. So and there might be something about you having to actually have some effort along with nature that can maybe unify you a little bit Yeah, when you have to take it on. Or that's one of the things my father-in-law was telling me about my kids is they didn't like to hike because it was all uphill. And there's something about having to hike the uphill to get to the prettier vistas that's just very symbolic. Yeah, yeah. It's powerful. How did you get into nature? I mean, of all things you could have chosen in the humanities, you're kind of going this direction, more into the environmental area. Why is that? How did you fall in love? Well, I had I I don't think of myself actually as any more of an outdoorsman or nature guy than 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 a lot of other people I know who are yeah. much more adept at you know backpacking and that yeah. sort of thing. But but I you know I had some experiences when I was young. I grew up in Connecticut, lived with a creek in my backyard, and spent um, a lot of my years in growing up just sort of playing, catching salamanders. Hmm. Uh, looking catch, catching frogs and building forts and that sort of thing and i did a, a couple of summers in the tetons uh when i was a young teenager at a boys camp yeah. where i was able to hike and backpack for the first time in the wilderness and i i think that really changed me um and then i as i was an adult i think i i actually got sort of professionally interested in it because i got very concerned about what i was learning about environmental degradation and i thought well why are we hurting the thing that we depend on and yeah. the, and and what can what can we do differently to to try to improve the situation so that that became kind of my focus it's fascinating it's interesting how your childhood can i mean it's it's almost that that seems like a kind of a pristine way of growing up a boy in a by a creek and building and having fun and chasing wildlife it seems kind of like ideal you know yeah and i i guess as we're all now more in cities in apartment high rises, fewer rivers and streams running through our neighborhoods. Maybe we're just getting away from that. Well, uh, you know, I think we're closer than we think. Are we? I mean, I don't know. Uh, you know, obviously, our your listeners are maybe uh, in very different places, but uh, certainly in Utah, the 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 mountains are right next to oh, us. Yeah. The rivers are right here. It doesn't take me very long at all to get out my front door, and I can feel. Uh, connected to to the world in a way that um, I, re- I deeply appreciate, and I think maybe that's something, and maybe we can talk about that yeah. more later. But that's something that 
we need to sort of rethink that yeah. nature isn't a five-hour drive to a it's national not. park. It's it's right out your back door. It can door. just be in a park. It can mm-hmm. just be under a tree. It can be in a tree. Uh, well, what we'll do, let's come back and we'll I, – I really want you to start to share with us how do we kind of connect ourselves to nature? How do we use our relationships and find our relationships in nature? I mean you've got some pretty interesting ideas about that. As well as um, what are we missing as far – or how do, we, how do we restructure our minds so we don't make it about this long-term thing that's going to take a long drive and a lot of gear to get there? Okay. okay. We'll talk about that after the break. Again, we're talking to jo- Dr. George B. Handley, Brigham Young University. We're trying to reignite the spark, get you back to nature if we can, right here on the Matt Townsend Show on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. For the 2012-2013 season, BYU Radio is your home for Cougar sports. Don't miss BYU football. Touchdown! Cougars take the lead! Men's basketball. Davies to the middle, and the right hand stop! Women's basketball. Brigham Young University Cougars are the West Coast Conference champions. Baseball. A walk-off grand slam, and BYU wins it! And more. All the major sports, all season long. Only on your home for Cougar Sports, Sirius XM 143, BYU Radio. For BYU Radio News, I'm Ian Jones. Here are a few of the stories we're following today. Syria is using warplanes against rebel forces. More from AP Middle East correspondent Mark Levy in Cairo. It's the first time the Syrian military has been seen using fighter jets to attack rebel positions. This comes during a battle for Aleppo, Syria's largest city. It's been going on almost two weeks. UN observers saw Syrian warplanes blasting rebel positions. The rebels now have some heavy weapons of their own, hitting back with tank fire. It's a sign of how far this conflict has escalated. President Bashar Assad admits this is a battle for the future of his country. There's no talk of negotiations or peace. Mark Levy, Cairo. NBC now thinks it will break even on the Olympics rather than taking the projected big loss. AP correspondent Julie Walker reports. The head of NBC Universal says the company is way ahead of where it thought it would be when it comes to the Olympics. CEO Steve Burke says that because of the time delay in showing events from London, he had expected ratings to be down compared with the Beijing Olympics. But they are up so far. Burke says the company had expected at one point to take a $200 million loss on London. NBC has said it sold more than $1 billion in ads for its Olympic coverage. Julie Walker, New York. A new private survey shows businesses keep hiring at a modest pace. The AP's Ed Donahue reports. Payroll provider ADP says 163,000 jobs were added last month. It's down slightly from the number reported in June, but suggests the job market could be improving after three sluggish months. The report covers just private sector hiring and not any government job growth. At the end of the week, the Labor Department will release its report on hiring for July. The ADP numbers tend to differ from the report from the government. The Labor Department said 80,000 jobs were added in June, less than half of what was reported by ADP. Ed Donahue, Washington. The government's new Medicare Fraud Center is up and running and already has critics. AP Radio's Brian Thomas reports. The new command center in Baltimore is replete with high-tech tools to track down Medicare scammers. 
It's all designed to cut down on $60 billion a year in fraud. The head of the center says it'll pay for itself many times over. But two Republican senators, Hatch of Utah and Coburn of Oklahoma, smell a king-size boondoggle and say the Obama administration is not being open enough about the computer interfacing that's at the heart of the center's effort. I'm Brian Thomas. The AP's Mark Hamrick reports the Federal Reserve ramped up a policy-setting meeting today, likely hinting at what it plans to do to support the economy. Chairman Ben Bernanke has said the Fed still has some ammo aimed at bringing down interest rates. However, the Fed isn't expected to pull the trigger just yet. Wells Fargo economist John Sylvia. It's much more likely um, you know, that the meeting mid-September, uh, September 12th and 13th, would be a meeting where some options would actually be considered and put into practice. And even then, the impact on most Americans is minimal. Len Franco at the conference board says the key is the job market. We need a job in order to, uh, to get income, and we need that income in order to consume and to spend. The next report on the job market looms Friday. Mark Hamrick, Washington. That's all for now from the BYU Radio Newsroom. Thanks for tuning in to Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. I'm Ian Jones. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. We're talking about reconnecting with nature. Some of us just, I guess, we're not... We're not getting it. We're not getting the chance. We're probably overthinking it or underthinking it. We may even be building a concept in our head, a paradigm that it's just too hard to do. It's too out of reach. So we've brought in Dr. George B. Hanley from Brigham Young University, who's uh, trying to help us reconnect and at least get the paradigm right about where nature really is, where it's not. So where are we missing it? Where is our head a little off when it comes to the idea of just getting back to nature? Well, I think it's uh, uh, when we think it's something out there or over there, it's not where we are. I think that's problematic. I I, uh, had an experience a number of years ago coming home from church with my family, and uh, we were driving up toward uh, a canyon near where I live, and the clouds were over the mountains, and it was wintry, and it was absolutely beautiful. And I uh, I kind of scared my kids because I just burst out. I said, oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. And they <laughs> what, said, what? Dad? What? Like, you know, did you run over yeah. a, did you a hit child somebody? or something? Yeah, and, right. and I said – and I didn't know what to say, and I just said, we live here. <laughs> and they so that that became kind of a family joke. They're they like, thought Dad's I was losing it. Dad is really nuts, you know. And and so I think uh, I think we're missing it when we don't realize beauty right literally in our yeah. in our midst, and and we don't uh, teach children to see it. Um, yeah. I I had a mother. I have a mother. She's still around, but she raised me. I don't think she ever made a point of trying to teach me about nature, but she was someone who just loved beauty of all kinds, whether it was beauty in a museum or at a concert hall, but certainly the the outdoors, when she saw anything that was beautiful and worth looking at, she drew our attention to it and and would would emote about it. And I think that was contagious. I think that was valuable. The power of like one person that has the eyes to see it, starts pointing it out, just sharing some feeling around it. And it can it can stay with them. I mean, it's interesting. All it takes is one person to notice the rainbow, and everyone in the car notices it, yeah. or that beautiful scenery. And so, how do we how do we start sensitizing the eyes? What what do we need to do to start 
seeing it? What what do you do with your family? What have you learned teaching all these students about it? Well, uh, some of it is a little bit calculated. I mean, you know, I say my mother didn't. Maybe my mother did calculate a lot of those experiences, yeah. but but I think. Uh, you know, direct experiences with with the with the immediate environment. I don't take. I do. T- I go on some field trips that are a few hours, but most of the time, I'll take students right out, right off campus, right near where they live, so that they know. Hey, this trail is here all the time. You don't have to pay money to use it, That's and it's so and it's a f- three minute drive from your dorm, and and look what you can see. You know, and and sometimes you know there are students who are not physically ready. I mean, obviously, I have to be worried about making them do something yeah. too hard. And I do think that's something you have to be aware of: is that be aware of is that uh, younger people, children, um, you don't want to you don't want to make them do something that's that's so hard that it becomes an unpleasant experience. But on the other hand, there's that fine line mm-hmm. of pushing them. I think I've I've enjoyed. Um, pushing my children a little bit and then helping them to experience a sense of elation and accomplishment um, and making them feel really proud of themselves for doing something. So, um, you know, I really talk that up. I really try to make that with my younger kids when when they were younger, tried to make them feel like they were really, really, you know, important for having done that. Yeah, nobody's done that. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah, like I have a nephew that his father just keeps taking him climbing mountains, peaks all over Denver, Colorado, and all over the Rocky Mountains. And the boy's getting his, I guess, his identity in a good way is starting to become that I'm healthy, I'm connected to nature, I'm climbing peaks that other kids my age aren't. They're not even going near these things, and yeah. it's a it's. It's an identity, but you're also talking about the relationship that gets forged. There's something powerful about relating to your family and nature that just oh, seems yeah. different. Yeah, I I uh, was actually at a my second daughter's going to USC in the fall, and we went out for some parent orientation, and the parents were expressing a lot of anxiety in a meeting for parents that I was at about how to get your kids to talk to you. They've sort of checked out now that they're going to college; they don't want advice anymore, and yeah. so on. And it, it occurred to me that. You know, I I found uh, walking with my kids or hiking with my kids uh, to be a really valuable way to get them to talk. Um, and even from my wife and me, uh, that's a valuable way for us to, to strengthen our relationship because I, there's just something about – and I'm sure there's like a physiological yeah. law that's it operating. But you get your heart rate up a little bit. You're sweating a little bit. Um, you know, you've got to be in some kind of shape so that that's not an unpleasant thing. And I, for me, I, I sort of crave it, you know. Mm-hmm. And when I when I start f- feeling that, I find that it loosens the tongue, it loosens yeah. the atmosphere, and people are more willing to chat. And the other thing I've sort of discovered early on, um, I mean, I don't, you know, again, we're not we're not hiking fanatics, but but we do get out and. And I remember my kids kind of dragging their heels once, and I said, "Well, invite a friend, you know." So they invited some friends, and of course, they were talking with each other. They weren't talking with their parents, right, but, right. but they were having a great time, and it sort of became a social thing. And 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 of course, nobody wants to look lazy around That's their right. friends. They can be lazy around their parents, but they want to. <laughs> yeah, you got to. Yeah, energetic, look strong. And, You're yeah. strong. Um, I just had a group of um, people with Alzheimer's that. They just took a bunch of family members and Alzheimer's patients and family members up to climb a mountain. And they Mm. climbed the mountain together. So those with Alzheimer's and the family members trying to support them. And it all became this kind of metaphorical journey of the climb. 
and we're all going to climb there and eventually we're going to get to the top of this mountain and we're going to see these incredible vistas. We're going to have this incredible connection. We're going to feel this sense of nature and we still have Alzheimer's and we still have to come down the mountain hmm. and it doesn't go away. But it's – so there's something so metaphorical just about nature that it seems it, – it seemed healing. Yeah, I mean, I I wrote uh, my book Home Waters uh, in part as a response to a, a terrible tragedy that happened 30 years earlier in my life when I lost a brother to suicide mm-hmm. when I was 18 years old, and and I uh, realized, you know, maybe 25 years after the event that the, the suffering and the sorrow was still with me, and I could go for a hike, and you know, I could feel elation, but. But the sorrow was still there, and the loss was still there, and in some ways, it it kind of helped me confront the mm. the facts of my life a little more yeah. clearly, yeah. more clear with a more clear head too, you know, right. without a sense of kind of running away from issues or problems, and and um, so I found, you know, I I with my children or with friends who are going through a tough time, I found, hey, let's go for a hike. And let's talk while we hike. And that, I think, becomes very therapeutic. And it, I think what you said is really profound. It doesn't um, – nature doesn't relieve us of mm-hmm. our human burdens, but but I think it puts them in a better perspective. I think uh, – um, well, as you well yeah. know, just even talking is sort yeah. of healing. But but I think there's something healing. I mean, I've done a lot of hikes on my um, all by myself, yeah. and I find them to be very sacred experiences because I can really uh, meditate and pray and and sort of find solace and solitude without anybody. Yeah. And yet, I all my considerations, all my relationships are right there with me. I'm thinking about my wife, my children, mm-hmm. uh, my extended family. It's healing. It's and, you know, to me, it all uh, – what is it? There's a great quote that says, um, all systems uh, reflect their maker. So to me, I believe in God and he's created this globe, this incredible world. So to me, it's just a great place to get out there and be able to just reflect on your God, which seemingly just puts everything in perspective, that there's just peace there. The you know the lilies in the field they're not worried about tomorrow and you are you're worried about your job and all these things and there's just something about sitting on the side of a mountain getting away in fact it really is it's uh, it's just peace and the irony is it's right there and so it doesn't yeah. even matter where it is whether it's a hill or a shore it's everywhere well another irony is that it doesn't seem to care whether you're there or not yeah. right i mean that i, I remember Love that so. feeling very distinctly when i was uh, 12 years old hiking in the tetons uh, with you know backpacking with a group of boys and looking at a at a basin with patches of snow and it just i could hear the wind blowing through the trees and i thought this is the loneliest place i've ever seen and it doesn't seem to matter whether we're here or not. This place has been here forever, and and who am I? You know, yeah. I mean, that sort of feeling of feeling small, that that's not the same thing as feeling like you don't matter. That's right. it, it actually um, was sort of uh, made me appreciate God, made yeah. me sort of yearn for connection to Him and to others in a way that was uh, really valuable. Did you – a minute ago you used the words, the essential facts. Is that Thoreau coming out in your – so Thoreau went away to the woods, right, mm-hmm. because he wished to live deliberately yeah. to confront only the essential facts of life yeah. and see what life had to teach. Right. When we get out there, we find out not all facts are the same. And 
I think that's probably maybe part of the problem in our head is when we're here at work and we're doing all these things, all these facts are spinning in our head and most of them probably don't matter. Most yeah. of them aren't essential. Yeah. Um, and so maybe getting out there just gives you a chance to focus on oh, sure. the real ones. That's powerful. Tell us what you um, – what you, what's your goal? Like when you think of you, – you, you're not just like some crazy, zany environmentalist that's just trying to – I mean, because there's guys that get back with hunting. There's there's men that are women that just love to go four wheeling. There's there's a lot of stuff that is just connecting to nature. What is your goal? What what do you want to do with your students when you're trying to connect them to environment and nature? Well, I I think it's I think we have to be careful not to treat nature like I say like a like a entertainment channel or. Yeah. Uh, um, something we're trying to get from it. Yeah. I think I think there's something valuable about uh, learning the ecological facts yeah. that are around and me being and, informed and being informed. And that I, my goal is is to improve my relationship not only to other people but to nature. And I think that relationship is improved when I learn about the sensitivities of the place where I live and I learn how my way of life impacts yeah. those those characteristics of my landscape and 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 I feel a, a need to change or improve the way I do things so that I'm lessening that impact so I because otherwise then I think we're kind of treating nature like we do when we go shopping yeah. you know it's just something we're purchasing and yeah, it's, it's not something we can do that too because it's the life system upon which we depend and 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 I feel you know in a religious sense I feel answerable to the creator I feel like if he gave this to mm-hmm. us if I have this privilege to live here in this yeah. beautiful place and I don't ever bother to figure out what am I doing mm-hmm. to it then I'm I'm not really worthy of that gift I've, I've, I'm sort of uh, you know taking it for granted it's interesting. It is like a relationship, isn't it? It's like you got you have to respect it. There's a reverence for the person you're with. You don't just treat them like a thing. But you it, have to it's, get to know it. You have to get you know? to know it. You have yeah. to understand it. And yet you can derive benefit, but that's not your purpose. Mm-hmm. And your purpose might be more to serve it than to take I, it from that's it. That's exactly it. I that's think powerful. I think, you know, and that's that's where the, you know, concern of environmentalists uh you know taking away the 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 divisiveness of politics yeah. you know, just the basic idea that that's the spirit of it that huh? that nature is ailing it needs our service and and uh and i think everybody can find a way to answer mm-hmm. for themselves what that service might be but i think if it's only a selfish thing yeah. It's not achieving. Well, know. and then in the end, you seem to cut yourself short because then you only derive half of the benefit from Earth. You know what I mean? You only get the usury part. Right. You what, don't get the. What benefit. have you done for me lately, that's right. nature? Yeah. Well, what beauty? Yeah, what beautiful right. sunset have you given me lately? <laughs> that's, it's so true. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, you're just used to. You only like nature as long as you've got noise coming from your machine. Right. Where you may not even be able to sit on a log and just feel. Yeah. And, and that's a whole other side of it that could be so appreciated. So that's really what environmentalists are trying to do. And then I guess we we politicize it and then there's the extremes of every side and everyone yeah. fights and everyone's got a financial impact. And But um, I, I kind of – I love that approach that you're taking because you're changing a few minds at a time. And as you change a few minds at a time, you change families. I mean there's people listening now that will go share with their family. So that's the challenge. What would you challenge? If you have about 30 seconds, what would you 
challenge the listener to do? Learn something new about where you live that you didn't know before, something about, uh, you know, the the basic species around you or the where the water comes from, uh, what your ecosystem is um, and what it depends on and what your impact might be on it. But That's I huge. think you just have to say, I've got to learn. I've got to listen and learn. Well, and, and how can you go wrong there? I mean, really, what's the harm? <laughs> yeah. You learn and then... Um, and then maybe get out there, take the people you love, and just go celebrate a sunset. Mm-hmm. Celebrate. Go have a hike. Go take a hike. Go somebody take my child camping. I think celebrate's a great word. It's important to celebrate the opportunity to be alive, the yeah. opportunity to be living where you are. That's powerful. Appreciate you so much. Uh, Dr. George B. Hanley from Brigham Young University, professor of humanities at Brigham BYU just a great guy. And again, um, if anybody wants to get a hold of his book, the name of the book is Home Waters, A Year of Recompenses on the Provo River. Is that mm-hmm. your latest book? Yeah. Powerful. Appreciate you being here. I'm sure we'll have you back to pick your brain more on how to get more out of life and this great blessing we call the earth. We'll be back, everybody, on the Matt Townsend Show right here on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. Connect with Matt on BYU Radio's Facebook page and Twitter at BYU Radio. Sirius XM 143. BYU Radio. There's a new helping hand on board the International Space Station these days. This is Innovation Now, bringing you stories behind the ideas that shape our future. Satellite servicing missions have long been a difficult feat for NASA astronauts. The missions require that humans rendezvous with orbiting satellites and other instruments, such as the Hubble Space Telescope, and perform complicated and intricate tasks with their own hands. That is, until the advent of advanced, highly functional robots. Enter Dexter, a 12-foot-tall, multi-armed robotic handyman built by the Canadian Space Agency. Dexter joins the intrepid human explorers who work to achieve humanity's goals in space, as well as NASA's dexterous humanoid robot and permanent space station resident, Robonaut 2. In March 2012, Dexter successfully completed a robotic refueling mission, or RRM, for NASA on board the International Space Station, exhibiting dexterity far beyond that of human hands. During the mission, Dexter accomplished the most intricate work ever performed by a robot in space, The robot helped astronauts successfully retrieve and inspect elements of orbital instruments, releasing launch locks and adapters, and cutting extremely thin lock wire. This represents Dexter's first participation in a research and development project. More on-orbit exercises and tests are scheduled for throughout the summer of 2012. Innovation Now is produced by the National Institute of Aerospace through collaboration with NASA. Visit us online at innovationnow.us. Start your day right with Marcus Smith and the morning team. We're going to talk about um, just stuff, you know, lots of things that show up that that once we're in your home and they go to somebody else's home and how do they get there? Maybe by way of a thrift store. Join in for conversation on current topics and events from around BYU campus and the world and get your morning talking. Tune into the morning show weekdays at 9 a.m. Eastern on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. 
We're wrapping up the show. We're talking about uh, just the power of nature and um, how to reconnect to this this earth. It's such a powerful thing. And, uh, you know, until you've sat out there underneath the stars without the, the city lights and just seen what really is up there, um, there is nothing more, I think, soothing, more healing than being able to get back to nature. There's a great quote by John Burroughs that says, I go to nature to be soothed and healed and to have my senses put in order. Uh, Isn't that so true? You go there to have your senses put in order. So I'm just going to challenge you as you're out there listening. um, Just start enjoying a little bit more. Start finding a way to be present in nature. It's interesting how how we can all get so excited about going to a park to see fireworks light up the show, and yet we might sit there impatiently while we're looking, you know, at nature, (laughs) waiting for something artificial to entertain us and to excite us. So maybe start looking a little bit deeper at the things of the world and just see what it has to offer. There is so much, so much that the world has to offer. Now we're going to go and uh, ever had a near-death experience well, Bryce uh, Tobin, one of our producers, he has gone camping too. That was his near-death experience. And he has some thoughts on that that he'd just love to share with us. Look, I don't want you to take this the wrong way, but I'm about to rant. This is The Bryce is Right. Camping has been an eye-opening part of my life. Every time I go, I realize how terrifying nature can be and how awesome it is to have toilet paper. But doesn't it feel right to get closer to nature, one might say? Well, people tell me I'm emotionally unavailable, so I don't know if it's in nature's best interest to get any closer to me than it already is. The friend zone can be a safe zone. Or one might say, but my family has gone camping for years. It's such a great tradition. As the great James Christopher Gaffigan once said, camping was a tradition in everyone's family until we came up with the house. Whenever I go camping, I sometimes think nature is trying to kill me. Anyone grow up with pine cones in their backyard? Or anyone do a school project with a pine cone, put peanut butter on it and bird seeds to hang it and feed the birds? Even though you only manage to feed the squirrels because they're dirty scavengers and need to get a job. Did you also know that these cone-producing trees are also trying to murder you? There's the Pacific Coast's Coulter Pine with a 16-inch long 10-pound pine cone covered in spikes so that there is, in fact, no best way it can fall on you. It's a good thing the Pacific Coast isn't covered in tall trees so these cones can reach terminal velocity. Wait, what? It is? They can? Uh Uh-oh. Or there's bears. They will eat just about anything. They're great at running uphill. They climb trees like it's nothing. Guns are only moderately effective against them. They're bigger than most people. Just think about it. They run into beehives all the time on purpose. You don't want to mess with that. Let's all just be grateful they don't have jetpacks. Or then there's spiders. But one day, I saw something shocking. You might not understand why it's so shocking, but where I'm from, you can only see about six stars and or planes as long as it's a clear night and the pollution is a little less dense than usual. A few years back, I was in the mountains of Idaho, and my buddy looked up and all he said was, Hey, look. Those two words would change how I saw my existence. I looked up, and for the first time, I saw my galaxy. I could no longer count everything up there with just one hand. My foray into nature had connected me with the universe in a wonderful way. But let's get real. Bugs are annoying. Tent floors are rarely comfortable. There's always a root in your back. You're always a little grimy. And there's always that one thing that you forgot to bring. Whether you like it or not, go out into nature. It'll be good for you. 
Whether to reconnect you or help you appreciate an air conditioner, nature normally won't kill you. But please don't think it won't give it a good try. All right, I'm out. And remember, don't forget to be awesome. Oh, Bryce, you little ranter. My ranting little friend, uh, bringing it all together. It's tough. Nature, I guess, isn't there to be convenient just for you. Nature doesn't make it easy. There's nothing. I have literally, I'm not sure I've spent a great night's sleep in nature, which is probably one of the reasons why I'm so lazy and I don't go there. The benefits, however, are incredible. Um, Aristotle said, in all things of nature, there is something of the marvelous. Uh, Helen Keller said, keep your face to the sunshine and you cannot see a shadow. It's just, I don't know, it's powerful. Hal Borland says, knowing trees, I understand the meaning of patience. Knowing grass, I can appreciate persistence. And as I think about our lives, as I think about all of us, just making it through this world, maybe what we need to figure out is how to eliminate the shadows by looking toward the light, as Helen Keller teaches us. And maybe the light is um, what we could find just out in nature Again, as we've learned today from Dr. Handley, it doesn't mean you have to get in a car, pack your tents, and go to the mountains. It simply might mean you just need to start looking up and start looking toward heaven, start looking toward your parks in your neighborhood, the streams. Find somewhere. Look at your rivers. There's so many huge rivers that um, that are crossing and crisscrossing this country. Start paying attention to the beautiful things that you see. Just a wonderful lawn might be enough. Start connecting to nature. Find a way to get back and recharge your batteries. Turn off your brain if you can a little bit um, and, and just get away. Maybe uh, somebody gave me some advice. I'm trying to sort all these things out in my work and my profession and all these things. And as I've been doing it, somebody said, maybe what you need to do is just get back Go take a vacation and uh, and just think about your life. And then he clarified, you know what? Maybe what would be better is just get back to nature and think about nothing. So I'm going to challenge you to do that. Start connecting any way you can to this great gift we call Earth. And uh, maybe when you get a chance to get on your knees and thank your God for the fact that you're alive and uh, you do have such a beautiful place to live. Um, We are very fortunate, I think, as a people. That's it, everybody, for the Matt Townsend Show. If you'd like to get a hold of us, you can email us at mattchat at byu.edu. And again, we're here Monday through Friday, 5 o'clock Eastern time. Again, replayed 7 o'clock Eastern or 6 a.m. Eastern time right here on BYU Radio on Sirius XM 143. KBYU-FM, HD2, Provo. Today's Thinking Aloud originally aired earlier this year. The following is a production of BYU Broadcasting in cooperation with the Brigham Young University Division of Continuing Education. Cheaters never prosper. Well, that's what my siblings and I used to sing song to each other years ago. If one of us tried to get away with something that the others weren't up to but only because the non-cheaters just weren't as quick or creative or weren't cheeky enough to pull it off. Now, make no mistake, Cheaters Never Prosper wasn't a maxim. It was a taunt and a complaint 
a complaint with a little envy mixed in. Maybe we'd stick out our tongues or put our thumbs in our ears and wave our fingers. It's a confusing world for children when you're feeling all conflicted because you don't approve of the cheater, and all at the same time you're feeling more than just a little jealous. In adulthood, the games continue unabated. The conflicted feelings don't subside much. The black and white view of cheating never really takes hold, no matter who preaches it. When it comes to ethics and honesty, we continue to see shades of gray. So we're not all good all the time, or all bad all the time. We're sometimes strong and sometimes weak. We make good and bad decisions. And the struggle is daily to know if we're doing the right thing. In a society where it seems that everyone else is cheating, are we more or less likely to stick with a moral code? Or do we find ways to cheat that don't erode our own sense of moral superiority? Hello, I'm Marcus Smith, thinking aloud about cheating. Who does it, how they do it, why they do it, to what degree they do it, and under what circumstances they do it. Did you notice my pronoun they? Maybe I should say we because it seems to be a universal sliding scale. Thanks for listening. Our guest on Thinking Aloud today is Dan Ariely. He's a professor of behavioral economics and psychology at Duke University. He is with the business school there, with the Center for Cognitive Neuroscience, also with the School of Medicine and the Department of Economics at Duke University. Ariely holds a bachelor's degree from Tel Aviv University, master's degree from University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, also from Chapel Hill, a PhD, and a PhD from Duke. He's a prolific writer of research-based academic articles, a couple of two New York Times bestsellers to his credit, titled Predictably Irrational, The Hidden Forces That Shape Our Decisions, also the title The Upside of Irrationality, The Unexpected Benefits of Defying Logic. And more recently, he has a book out titled The Honest Truth About Dishonesty, How We Lie to Everyone, Especially Ourselves. You may have seen him as a commentator practically all over the media, and I'm particularly fond of the TED Lecture Series as well. You may have seen that. Don, Dan Ariely is on the phone with us. Great to have you with us. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Nice to be here. I want to just talk about the queasiness of the topic. Have you experienced that people are receiving your research about cheating or dishonesty with any sort of queasiness? I know that's difficult to detect, but how would you uh, size that up? <laughs> So I think so. Actually, when I was thinking about the subheading, there was a question of uh, how we lie to everybody, especially ourselves, or how other people lie to themselves. Uh, this was the alternative that I was thinking about. And in some sense, I think people would have a much easier time to think about everybody else's cheating and not themselves. But, but I thought it's particularly important to realize that we have the capacity within us, because only if we would realize the full range of sensitivity to, to dishonesty, I think we would... Uh, be willing to accept that something is really not the way we think it is and we should do something about it. So that's on the one hand. On, on the other hand, uh, my, my book came out a couple of weeks ago and I spent all of Monday, the first day of the book launch, talking about dishonesty and then all of Tuesday 
And then in addition to doing academic uh, research, I also have talked to all kinds of people who've committed different crimes. And in particular, I've talked to a guy called uh, Garrett Bauer, who uh, was found guilty on, for insider trading. And that Tuesday, which was the second uh, day of my book launch, I called him up at around uh, 2 o'clock just before he had his sentencing. And then later on in the evening, I heard that he got sentenced for nine years in prison. And I have to tell you that that Tuesday night, after hearing for two days, talking for two days, nothing about cheating and talking about nothing about cheating and have this guy being sentenced for nine years in prison, I just couldn't sleep the whole night. I was just kind of completely... um, worried about the state of the world. I was kind of uh, disgusted with, uh, you know, human nature and the devastation we caused to ourselves. But what I tried to do by the morning is to basically say that I think, much like other irrational human tendencies, as long as we understand where things are wrong, uh, we have a hope of fixing things. So I kind of uh, got myself energized. A few days later, I went to talk to the... uh, some people in Washington who are regulating a different a type of banking institutions and so on. And I was hoping that, you know, maybe maybe the goal is to be upset and to then use that being upset to try and motivate ourselves to do something different and make sure that things are on an improving trend, not a deteriorating trend. Now, within the line of your disciplines, and you have many of them in the social sciences, and uh, I don't know, for example, what behavioral economics is as a discipline. Maybe you can help me with that a little bit, too. But I'm just wondering about your academic and uh, goals and then your own personal objectives as they relate to your academic interests here. Yeah. So, so first of all, about behavioral economics. Behavioral economics is a discipline that it is between uh, social sciences and economics, and, you know, in standard economics, we think that human behavior is perfectly rational. People compute everything. They can consider all the cost and benefit. They take everything into consideration. And in behavioral economics, we don't assume much about human behavior. Instead, we put people in different situations, and we see how they behave. And what we often find is people don't behave in a perfectly rational way. And then the next part of it, which is for me even more important, is the question of what do we do with that? And if you think about it, uh, policymakers always try to regulate behavior. We as individuals try to predict what other people are going uh, to do for us. Uh, we're trying to understand our own, our own behaviors. And if we have the rational standard model as predicting behavior and it's not correct, then we're going to get into all kinds of trouble. And I'll give you two examples for this. So when people, for example, are trying to regulate the behavior of bankers, they say to themselves, uh, people consider the cost and benefit of their actions. So if we will have high prison sentences, everybody will behave well because nobody wants to go to prison for a long time. But you know what? Nobody I've talked to have ever considered the long-term ramification of their actions. In fact, if you look at the death penalty and you say to yourself, are the states that have a death penalty have lower crime rates than the states who don't? The answer is basically no. So now we have this situation that if people don't think about the long-term consequences, are we really deterring any crime or any bad behavior by creating harsh punishment? And the answer is basically not. Similarly, when we think about our own personal lives, we tend to think about people as either good or bad. And you say to yourself, as long as I deal with good people and not bad people, everything would be fine. Well, it turns out that it's not about good people and bad people. There are some bad people out there, but most of the good people are capable of being slightly dishonest as well. Not a lot, but being slightly dishonest. So if you think about your dentist, your accountant, your, you know, whoever it is, and even you yourself, 
somebody who's providing a service to other people, uh, we kind of don't see ourselves as being able to uh, be dishonest. We don't see the people that we deal with that we know in general are good people. And because of that, we can get into lots of trouble. And, and my general objective, and, and you know this from my other books, I, uh, I was in hospital for a long time. And my, my approach is to basically use social science to get people to behave better. Right, so I started with the question of how you remove bandages from burn patients, which was a question that was very uh, dear to my, my heart uh, for a long, long time. And I figured out that the nurses were not doing it the right way, and can we fix that? And I think the same way I think about everything else I do. What, what don't we understand correctly in this case about honesty, and therefore what should we do differently as we go about our lives as uh, policymakers, as business owners, as individuals, and so on. Sounds to me like you do have a personal investment with personal objectives rather than just this being sort of your day job as an academic. Yeah, you know, I, I think that we're creating a world. I mean, there's no way but to, to look around you and say, look at what we've created. It's really quite amazing. And we created a lot of physical stuff, right? Uh, houses and cups and computers and so on. And whenever we fail, when we don't do these things correctly, we can see. If we build a bridge and it collapses, we, we basically learn from that. But we're creating a lot of mental system as well. Healthcare, uh, financial markets, and so on. And what happens when we create those systems and they actually don't function as we think they do? And... Then, then I think we can get ourselves into trouble, and I want us to limit the amount of trouble that we can get into. Well, let's start to dissect this phenomenon, this human phenomenon of cheating, and, and, and I want you to just sort of describe some of your findings, uh, generally summarizing what's, what's in your book. But, but first, I want to know, when you look at this phenomenon, are you looking at it very generally, uh, in, or is it limited to certain types of transactions or exchanges? For example, there can be honesty in relationships, there can be dishonesty. There can be cheating in commerce. There can even be dishonesty in the realm of ideas and the discussion about ideas. So what, what's the scope of, of your research here? So, so I basically try to study things in a very abstract and general way because I think that the moment you study something in an abstract way, you can apply it in many, many areas. So let me kind of give you a quick rundown of how we study dishonesty. I bring people to a big room. And I basically say, uh, you have this sheet of paper with 20 simple math problems. Go ahead and solve as many as you can in five minutes. And I will give you a dollar per question that you solve correctly. People go ahead. They work as fast as they can. At the end of the five minutes, I say, please stop. Uh, uh, Count how many questions you got correctly. And then go to the back of the room and shred this piece of paper. And after people finish shredding the piece of paper, I say, now come back to the front of the room and tell me how many questions you got correctly. In the basic experiment, people claim to have solved six, and I pay them $6. What the people in the experiment don't know is that I played with the shredder. So I, uh, the shredder shred only the size of the page, but the main body of the page remains intact, and I can jump in and I can find out how many questions people really solve correctly. And what do we find? We find that lots of people solve four problems and report to be solving six. Very few people cheat a lot. Lots of people cheat a little bit. In fact, throughout the whole book, I described lots and lots of experiments. In total, we had about 30,000 people. And from those 30,000 people, we had 12 big cheaters. And those 12 big cheaters stole about $150 from me. And we had about 18,000 little cheaters. And together, they stole about $36,000 from me, kind of just to give you an, an idea. So now that we have this basic measure 
of dishonesty. Now you can say, okay, let's think what would influence it. So you can say, for example, how much would it matter if people got paid more per question or got paid less? Or what would it matter if we increase the probability of being caught? Well, when we change those two, we find no effect. The amount of money people tend to gain doesn't matter, and the probability of being caught doesn't matter. So what does matter? It turns out it's all about rationalization. And it's all about our ability to act dishonestly, but think of ourselves as still good people. And if, if you think about rationalization, you can ask yourself, what do you think would change rationalization? What kind of things would make rationalization higher and lower? So, so, so let me ask you, right? What kind of things do you think would change human ability to rationalize in general? You know, that's a tough one. Uh, when I think about my own behavior and my own life, I, I'm going to generalize from my own experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what you say does resonate with me that I would have to rationalize by saying I am an exception to what uh, most people should be uh, uh-huh. conforming with because there are certain circumstances in my life. Maybe it's I had a particularly bad day or maybe I broke my arm. I don't know what it is. It might be that I'm, yep. I, I, I'm in poverty and other people are not. But I would have to categorize myself as being exceptional in some way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so um, for example, the fact that you're in poverty, when we remind people that they are in a position that they are uh, not as well as they could have been for no fault of their own, 